Very much. This is a tremendous venue. Uh, the only time I've been at an event like this was when I did something for Amnesty International's 50th anniversary last year. We read the works of writers imprisoned in their own country. I read some Geoffrey Archer. And we, um... <laughs> but uh, being with Claire and Deborah, and now. Uh, being an author, so to speak, I can't tell you how pleased I was when the BBC, I did an interview on BBC Breakfast and the strap line was Alan Johnson, politician and author. I much prefer the second part to the third. But uh, I want to tell you about uh, my book, uh, This Boy, which is a memoir of a childhood. And a childhood lived kind of round here. If you go down to Portobello Road and you turn right and you walk down to the junction with Goldman Road and you turn right again and you go over the railway bridge where Trellick Tower stands. Trellick Tower was Southam Street. Uh, it was east and west of Goldman Road and there's just a little bit now uh, on the west end, the, what they now call the Earl of Portobello on the corner was the Earl of Warwick pub. And if you go down a little bit, you'll see Southam House on the right hand side, that was there. Uh, when I was born and went to live there in, the in 1950. But the book is a story of two women, Lily, my mother, and Linda, my sister. And there'll be some photos coming up in a minute, and you'll see Lily. Lily was born in Liverpool, one of ten children. Two of her siblings died in infancy of pneumonia, of pneumonia following measles, which was very common in the days before inoculation. Her mother had had 10 children by the age of 38. She died of stomach cancer when she was 42. This is Lily. Her mother, Lily's grandmother, had died aged 42. Lily was always convinced that she would die aged 42. She's smoking a fag there, which uh, uh, nowadays her GP would tell her not to do because she had a bad heart condition. Uh, in those days, probably the GP was smoking as well and offered Lily one of her fags, but uh, uh, that was about 1950. She is standing in the garden of 107 Southam Street, where we lived. So, so in the war, Lily, aged 18, had come down to London. Uh, she had a tyrannical father who pushed her very hard. She was a very bright girl, but as soon as she passed her scholarship, refused to buy the uniform for the school she was earmarked to go to, so she didn't go to what was then a, a, a grammar school in Liverpool. Um, so she left, came down, worked in the NAFI, met my father, Steve, who was a pub pianist, uh, a very talented pianist, only had to listen to a piece of music and he could reproduce it. Uh, Bert Ambrose, the great band leader, offered him a job, but the deal was that he must learn to read music and that was too much like hard work. I'll explain this later, please. Uh, any Guardian readers, readers? This was 1953, by the way. It was the coronation. Uh, um, so, um, so she met Steve. They came to live in Southam Street. If you read the history of this area, and it's all lumped together now as Notting Hill, but actually, I mean, this is Notting Hill in West 11, where we lived in North Kensington, variously described Kensal Town, the town, Portobello Road was the lane. 
Southam Street had been built, jerry-built, in the 19th century. They were expecting a population explosion that didn't happen. Very cheaply built. They were condemned in the 1930s as uninhabitable, and we were living there. Uh, that's a bonsai, actually, that they cleared for the coronation celebration. We were still living there in, uh, in the 50s. No electricity, just gas. Uh, the things that actually most people had to tolerate, uh, which I won't tell you about in terms of our living conditions, because you probably most of you just eaten, but it wasn't a very nice place to live. Typically, 16 people in a house. In fact, in the 1951 census, it showed that in the Goulburn Ward, which was this area of Southam Street, um, there was a ratio of 12.7% that lived a density of more than two people to each room. The London average was 2.5. So it had always been a notoriously poor area. Um, Lily had this heart condition. Steve was out playing the pubs and clubs, was a painter and decorator, but generally didn't go into work, came home when he was drunk, beat my mum, and had this incredible thing. There was always a piano in whatever hovel we were in, in the corner, but he kept the keyboard locked. So me and my sister, Linda, that's Linda, is cherry boot polish, by the way. She was supposed to be a, some kind of piccaninny, uh, which was a creature of its time. That's me looking. I've just told her off. I've said, look, this is not politically correct, Linda. <laughs> uh, um, and because, because my father didn't come home and because he left in the end, he ran up, off with a barmaid from the lads of the village pub Lads of the Village is now, I think, called the Polar Prince or something down on Southern Row. It's a wine bar, so it's still there. Uh, and he left in 1958 and didn't come back. But he wasn't contributing too much money before he went. So Lily used to go out and scrub and clean and be what's called a char lady in some of the houses around here, down off Church Road in uh, Church Street in South Kensington. She had a whole series of jobs. Um, and when Steve had left, she had to try to find where he was. These were terrible times for women. It was kind of post-emancipation, pre-equal opportunities. All of your benefits, practically everything, came through your husband. And when your husband buggered off, then you had a hell of a job trying to get any... The other thing was a stigma, that it was always thought to be the woman's fault. And Lily suffered from some of that as well. She tried to lose her Liverpool accent. She wanted to conform. London was not a welcoming place. Uh, everyone around Notting Hill spoke the same way. And Lily tried, not because she was ashamed of her Liverpool a uh, accent, but because of a desire to conform. There she is as an 18-year-old. So she had this heart condition, but she still had to work. She had to work more after Steve had gone because the little bit of money that he didn't gamble away or spend on booze... Uh, that had gone, so she had to take on more jobs. She couldn't get any kind of settlement with him for maintenance until she found out where he lived. And that's the story in the book of three people she cleaned for, single men, a stockbroker, a journalist, uh, and a lawyer. Heard her crying one day. She thought she was on her own in this flat she was cleaning. One of them heard her and said, what's the matter, Lily? And she told him, and he tracked Steve down to East Dulwich, where he's living with this uh, barmaid. We thought, why would anyone want to go to East Dulwich? That was incredible to us, but um, <laughs> he did. 
And then the solicitor, pro bono, took the case through the courts and got her a settlement. So Steve had to promise to send a postal order every week for two pounds, 10 shillings. Uh, and uh, most often it didn't arrive. Lily had something called mitral stenosis. It hadn't been diagnosed until she'd been in and out of hospital quite a few times. In fact, she went into hospital when I was seven and Linda was 10 and my dad was still at home. And uh, he uh, disappeared on Christmas Eve and didn't come back till the day after Boxing Day. So my sister cooked the Christmas dinner with this. My mum had got this hamper. People paid a penny a week to get a Christmas hamper and there was a chicken which Linda put in the age 10 decided to cook the Christmas dinner because he hadn't arrived, put it in the oven, but didn't read about taking off the plastic from the chicken. Um, and when we went to the hospital to see my mother that afternoon, he was waiting uh, with beer on his breath and said, don't tell your mother I wasn't home, she'll have a heart attack and die. I just want to say that as the kind of man he, he was. Um, so he went. We, uh, Lily was diagnosed with mitral stenosis and we lived near Hammersmith Hospital, Duquesne Road. I mean, it was virtually, Lily was going there most of the time because it was a center of excellence for heart operations. And she was told that they'd just invented an operation to put a new valve in the heart that would give her another 10, 15 years of life. And she was really worried. And Linda and I, well, Linda mainly, I mean, I'm just a kind of wimp in the background in all of this. Um, said, look, don't you, want to add, don't you want to see your grandkids? Uh, you should have the operation. She was 42 years of age when her, when her mother and her grandmother had died. And sure enough, Lily didn't survive the operation. My sister then, Linda, had looked after me most of the time. So she, from about the age of 10, it was just me and her, because my mother was in hospital for long periods, six months before she had the operation that killed her in preparation so I said, Linda, what do we do? She said, we keep our heads down, keep quiet. No one will notice, otherwise we'll be put in institutions, was the term Linda always used. She'd worked to clear my mother's debts. My mum wasn't very good with money, she didn't have much. She'd go out and put down payments on things, higher purchase, and then not be able to pay for it, and so the bailiffs would come. Except uh, she took us to Labrick Grove Library and got us reading very early on. And there's a quote somewhere about books furnish their mind. F books furnish the mind in a form that the bailiffs can't repossess. So they took uh, almost everything else, but they couldn't take what we'd read. Um, so, Lily had, uh, so Linda had done all of that. She'd sorted out my mum's funeral, all of that. Uh, now it was a case of what do they do with us? So she, she said, just keep your head down. My mother was with the Roe Housing Trust, and she was on the council waiting list all of her life, from the time she moved to London to the time she died, and never got that council house. She wanted a house of her own. She could walk through her own front door. The offer of a council house in um, Welling Garden City arrived two weeks after she died. Linda took the letter to the council and said, can we have this? You know, my mother's dead. They said, no, of course not. I was due to go into foster care, she was due to go into Dr. Bernardo's. And Linda just refused. She said, you'll have to, they were pulling our other house down, Warmer Road, which is down off Latimer Road. Pulling that down, she said, you'll have to pull it down around us. 
I did point out to her it would be easier moving us than it would the old piano in the corner, but she, uh, she, was, uh, she was determined. And they sent us this social worker called Mr. Pepper. And poor Mr. Pepper decided to lecture Linda about how she was far too young. No way, you couldn't get a council house unless you were over 21. She was only 16, I was only 13. There was no chance. And Linda said, you don't know anything about us. We were living on our own for years. She gave him hands on hips, I remember telling him off. And Mr. Pepper went off and was very impressed that Linda was capable of looking after me. Probably took a big risk for a social worker, but put a deal together that said, if we got an adult that lived in the London County Council area to act as guarantor, we could have a flat to ourselves in, uh, on the Wilberforce Estate, 11 Pitt House Wilberforce Estate in Battersea, which meant crossing the Thames, which was, we had to think about, obviously. But actually, when, <laughs> when he offered Linda this place, she went to look at the first offer we'd had. Now, obviously, the council thought two kids were just given this crappiest slum, we'd get rid of it on these two. And she went to see it, and she rang Mr. Pepper. Um, and she said, I'm not, she said, she told me that this place, they'd taken the doors off to burn it as, as wood. It was worse even than we were living in, in Southam Street. So she said to Mr. Pepper, I'm not accepting it. He said, you have to accept it. You can't dictate to me, I've done this deal. She said, well, you go and look at it, and if you think you could live there with your family, come and look me in the eyes and tell me that, and we'll think about it. He never appeared again. We got this nice flat, nice little masonette, 11 uh, pit house. So Linda was incredibly strong and is in many ways the heroine uh, of, the, of the story. Um, she lives in Australia now. Lynn Barber, in her review in the Sunday Times, said that, uh, never mind about Alan Johnson being prime minister, Linda Johnson should have been prime minister. <laughs> I think that's uh, probably right. There'll be a photo coming up here. It'll be very embarrassing, which is my wedding day. So I got married when I was 18. That's when the book ends, you'll be pleased to know. Nothing beyond that. I've had a failed rock career. That's not the wedding photo. That's me and Linda. Get rid of that one. God. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Uh, these are the school photos. Bevington Primary School and Warnington Junior School. That's me as a postman my first Christmas. Uh, my daughter was born on Christmas Eve, uh, a week after that was taken. So I was 18, two kids, because my first wife had a daughter, Natalie, who I adopted. And that's me, that's Judy, that's my sister, Linda. Final point, John Rental said, I want you to buy this book. Don't listen to John Rental. He said, it was a lovely review, but he said it's the saddest book he ever read. Uh, and I can't see that being the strap line, really. I hope there's more <laughs> vivacity and more humor in there. Um, but, you know, the word I would, would I use sadness? No, I'd use a word I discovered not so long back, there was a guy who spent a year studying 15 volumes of the Oxford English Dictionary so that you wouldn't have to, and he found all these words. He found this word, unbepissed, which came from the Middle Ages when you walked down between two of these medieval houses and you didn't have a bucket of, you came out unbepissed, it's a word. Great word. Uh, a Bayard, which is someone whose self-confidence comes from their own ignorance. Uh, a Farage, we might uh, use that. <laughs> Term now, but um, but my favourite my favourite one is this word apricity, and apricity is the feeling of warmth on your face in the winter, and I don't think we felt sadness. I think because of my mother's courage and because of my sister, I think me and her always felt apricity. That actually it was winter and it was pretty bleak, but there was something good that was going to come. <laughs> something. 
good that was going to come from it. Isn't that spooky? I think that's what they do when you've had your 15 minutes. Thank you very much.